Really, it's hard for me to invite in her own uh, synagogue. But uh, we have the opportunity for Rabbi Kiernow to uh, introduce our speaker tonight. Thank you very much. Nice to see everybody. Uh, a few folks who are also uh, just recovering from the women's retreat. And oh, yes. Here, so you were there all the time. Good to see some of you again. Um, I'm going to let you read about Rabbi Dr. Aaron Pankin. He is incredibly accomplished as a scholar, as a writer, as a teacher, as a speaker internationally. What I want to tell you about him actually comes not from him, but from his predecessor and very, very dear friend, David Ellenson, whom, who has been here, whom many of you know, who is a legendary, uh, now past president of, of Hebrew Union College. And I don't remember the timing exactly, whenever he was here uh, a couple years ago, a year and a half ago or something, David and I had lunch at the Royal Palm on his way out to um, City Airport. And he was talking about the challenge of passing on the uh, incredibly important mantle of leadership of Hebrew Union College, and he was talking about his own retirement, and he was talking about thinking about uh, the next president. And I know that David didn't reveal anything to me that he wouldn't have said to anybody else, and I know that he uh, uh, felt this very, um, you know, he felt very moved by the incredible caliber of candidates who were, who were interested in this job. And he just, in his own sweet and loving way, let me know that he would just feel so good about passing on the college to, to Aaron Pankin if that was if that was the way it was going to go. And it was just, it was so loving and beautiful. And I know, I know that David takes that responsibility so very seriously uh, when he thinks about the future, not only of Reform Judaism, but the future of the Jewish people. So um, it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome uh, Aaron Pankin. Shifted dramatically now that they're not around our house. 
what I have noticed, and this is really deep Jewish wisdom, is that they actually come back from time to time, and they even talk to us on the phone when they have decisions that they have to make. So uh, it's amazing to me that, you know, I kind of thought maybe at 18 things would quiet down and they'd go <laughs> off to college and everything. We are continuing to parent. But what I want to think about is what it means to be a parent according to Jewish tradition and what we can learn from Jewish tradition about being a parent. And I also want to point out that this is not just about parenting. This is actually also about grandparenting. This is the idea of how you influence the next generation from a Jewish perspective to be able to make good decisions and to think about what they should do with their life. Um, you will find, I hope, by the end of tonight that there are a number of texts in here that actually are quite relevant to the sorts of decisions that parents and grandparents make on a very regular basis um, as we raise our children no matter what age they happen to be. So um, let's take a look at the first text, and we're going to look mostly at the Babylonian Talmud tonight. Um, I will give you a very quick orientation to the Babylonian Talmud, if that's okay. Since not everyone reads this on a daily basis, it's usually good to kind of give people a sense of what's going on here. Babylonian Talmud consists of two major strands. The first one is called the Mishnah, and the Mishnah was completed around 225 CE. Um, this is a collection of 63 different tractates, which are basically books, and they talk about pretty much every aspect of Jewish law you could imagine. So these 63 books are organized into six orders, and the orders basically are large-scale sections of Jewish law that might make sense to kind of group things together in them. I can tell you the orders, but basically what we start with is, um, uh, basically there are holidays in one section, women in another section. We have a section that's devoted to things you do at the temple, i.e. the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, we have life cycle events go in other sections, and basically these six sections cover all the different pieces of Jewish law. And then they're split further into these 63 different tractates. Mishnah completed 225 CE. From that point, and the minute you finish a book in Judaism, what do, what do you do next? Start, you start, over. start interpreting it, or start over. So that's exactly what happened. Once the Mishnah is completed in 225 CE, and by the way, it's collected probably from hundreds of years of oral tradition, when it's completed in 225-ish CE, it then becomes interpreted in the Gemara. And that process goes on, we think, from 225 CE until about 700 CE. Of course, there's a big argument. If you want to have fun, go to an academic conference of Talmudists and say, I think the Talmud was finished in 700. <laughs> and people will yell at you and say, no, it was 600, or no, it was 800. Nobody really knows exactly because there wasn't a date stamped on the, uh, uh, on the file in Microsoft Word that tells us exactly when it was completed. We don't have that kind of information. But we know that somewhere 600, 800, somewhere in there, it seems that the Talmud came together. Okay, so Mishnah is the earlier stuff. The Gemara is a little bit later. The combination of those two things make up the Talmud. There are pieces in the Gemara that actually come from the earlier strand, just to make it even more complicated. But the point is, this is uh, representative of literature for about seven centuries of Jewish thinking on all sorts of different areas. So to save you time, I have now culled about six or seven different texts from the Talmud, and we're going to take a look at them. So turn with me to the first text, if you would. So the first text talks about what are the mitzvot, and the term mitzvah here means a commandment, right? We can talk about a mitzvah as a good deed. That doesn't appear so much in the Babylonian Talmud, a little bit more in the Palestinian or Jerusalem Talmud. But in the Babylonian Talmud, a mitzvah means a commandment. So here we get the question of every mitzvah, which is incumbent upon a parent with respect to his or her child, men are obligated, but women are not. But every mitzvah incumbent upon a child with respect to his or her parent, men and women are equally obligated. Now, first thing I want to point out to you is how unique this is, making a differentiation between male and female parents and who is responsible for what, first of all. 
Second of all, I want to point out that the language here, and especially if you read it in the Hebrew, is extremely confusing because it doesn't make clear if the mitzvah is from the person to the parent, or from the, in other words, from the child to the parent, or from the parent to the child. And in fact, that doesn't get resolved until later on in the Gemara, when it does get resolved, it says the following. It says that the obligations that children have to their parents are the same for men and women. And we'll talk about what exactly those obligations are. But the obligations from parents to children are different. The parents, the male and female parents, have different obligations to their children. Interesting. Why is that? Probably because in the ancient world, men had the ability to spend money and the ability to run the household, and women did not generally have that ability. And the things that are going to be done for children, you may have noticed, sometimes cost money. Have you noticed that? <laughs> so, um, so here the idea is who has the resources and who's able to do that? I would argue, as a nice, happy Reformed Jew, that when we get to modern North American society, when Jews, men and women, are pretty much equal, at least my wife tells me I have to say that, and I obey her. Uh, so men and women are pretty much equal. Since that's the, the reality of the situation now, I would, in essence, try to, to move from a position of men and women having different obligations to more of a shared responsibility that both of them have. But I want to be authentic and alert you to the fact that there was a differentiation between male and female roles back in the good old days, 1500, 1800 years ago. Okay? So... Uh, this is the first part. The Gemara then goes on to interpret, and this is where it gets quite interesting. What is every mitzvah incumbent upon a parent with respect to his or her child? We taught it about this statement that our rabbis taught. A father is obligated, and here's where we get the listing of obligations of what a parent must do for a child, and this is where it gets quite fascinating. A father is obligated to circumcise his son, redeem him, teach him Torah, take a wife for him, don't try that at home, and teach him a trade. <laughs> And there are those who say to teach him to swim. So I want to go through each of these obligations a little bit to think about what they mean, what the, what the meaning of each of these obligations would be, and why these are obligations that a parent, in this case a father in the ancient world, but I would argue any parent, should be responsible for for their child. So we start off with Brit Milah, circumcision. Why is that a good place to start in terms of obligations for the kinds of things you must do for your children? Come on in. Don't be afraid. Welcome. Okay, come on in. Don't be afraid. We're only discussing children. Circumcision. Circumcision. Right. Yeah, the last person who comes in has to actually. No. Because the child is only eight years old. Child's only eight days old. So go ahead. Because he's very young. The child's very young. So it's so one of the ways to look at this is chronologically. Yes. And that's exactly what's happening here. Starting chronologically, the first thing you can do aside from actually bearing the child, which. I know this is not listed here, but the first thing that you could do is actually to, to circumcise your son. And we're focused on male children. I would argue some sort of naming or some other recognition for a female child would also be kind of the analog here. So chronologically, that's the earliest thing you can do. But why is it important? What does Brit Milah actually symbolize and, and represent? Covenant. Covenant. What you will see in this list is that all of this is a way to get your child to be Jewish. A way to get your child to be part of the Jewish system, to be part of the system that the rabbis want your child to be part of. So, circumcision. Redeem him. What's that mean? Pidyon Habed. Pidyon Habed. Good. Anybody been to a Pidyon Habed lately? Okay. Not lately? Not lately? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Pidyon Habed is a ceremony that on the 30th day, what happens is you give usually coins, gold coins of some sort, to a Kohen, to a Kohen who is a 
priest representing the temple. And in essence, you're kind of buying your child back from service to the temple. The goal here was to make sure that everyone in the whole world was dedicated to being working at the temple. And what we're actually doing is we're buying that child back. We're redeeming him from that temple service. Otherwise, theoretically, every one of us should go serve in the temple. Now, of course, in a post-temple world where there isn't a temple to serve in, one can argue that that obligation might actually not be something sensible to continue to think about. And in fact, the reform movement at a certain point decided that we wouldn't do Pidyon Haben, also because there wasn't uh, a large focus on the idea of uh, being a Kohen or being a priest and having service to the temple in that same way, especially in a post-temple environment. It just didn't make sense. But there are still many traditional Jews who actually do observe on a regular basis Pidyon Haben. One other interesting fact about Pidyon Haben, which is fascinating, is you have to, you cannot be born, for example, by C-section, because you have to be what's called peterechem. You have to be the first one through the birth canal. Um, and if you are born other ways, then you would not actually qualify for a Pidyon Haben. So it's kind of an interesting area. So only when you are first born, um, because all firstborn things, according to the Torah, go to the temple and get dedicated. So the firstborn really are the ones who, um, who have this obligation. You had a question or comment? I was going to ask about that, about the first one, and I know that um, if you've had a miscarriage or something, then that, then and if you're firstborn, right. so then that does, then you're out of the loop. Yeah. But how do the other children get redeemed? So the other children don't actually have to be redeemed because I should have said this more clearly at the beginning. It's all it's firstborn, right. um, and that's you know that's a firstborn animals, first to the first fruits. There's a whole theme going on uh, through the Torah, which talks about the first of everything should go to God. Okay, so this only really for the firstborn. Okay, yeah. Were there C-sections 1,500 years ago? Indeed there were. Um, they're called Caesarean sections because some of the Caesars actually were born that way. And in fact, that was, uh, I, I would imagine, by the way, that the success rate was lower. <laughs> Especially, right, the, uh, the mothers, I don't think, did too well. Nobody really did as well as they should have in those days. Um, what, yeah, but I, the other thing that's interesting, by the way, is I was doing, um, I was doing some research on abortion in Jewish law at one point. And one of the fascinating things that I never knew about before is actually they had examples of women who died, you find these things in Greek texts, where they then do an autopsy uh, and they look at um, you know, the fetal development. They had actually a very, I was surprised, a very well-developed understanding of fetal development and how many months, you know, what you would have at how many months and everything else. So, um, so that goes into some of the Jewish law around fetuses and what the, you know, what, when, when it, According to the Talmud, actually, it says up until 40 days, the fetus is considered to be nothing but water. And then from 40 days and on, it begins to have more and more value over time. But it's not considered a life, according to Jewish law, until the moment the head comes out um, in the birth. So it's a fascinating thing in terms of abortion, pro-life, pro, you know, uh, pro-life or pro, what's the choice. one? Pro-choice, thank you, which I subscribe to. I should know what to call it. Pro-life and pro-choice, uh, there's some fascinating rules in Jewish law about that. So. Anyway, let's go on a little bit more. So we've got uh, Pidyon Haben. Now we have Teach Him Torah. Now, why do you have to teach a kid Torah? It's pretty, it's kind of obvious. Everybody's nodding, but why? Otherwise, they won't know it. Otherwise, they won't know it, right? <laughs> so notice something interesting. You are constructing a Jewish individual, right? And the first thing you got to do is you get them in, you, you know, through circumcision or naming. You get them then next to, uh, to redemption so that they can continue to actually function as a normal Jew. But then you gotta teach them Torah. And the idea here is that no Jew will be complete unless they actually know Torah. 
Um, that, I think, is a very serious obligation. It's something that all of the synagogue movement, schools, everybody everywhere ought to really be thinking about. Are we doing a good enough job thinking about how we teach Torah? I think it's an absolutely vital question. Okay, but not a surprise for the rabbis to see this. Now, take a wife for him. So, um, that actually is written in the Hebrew, in the transitive, which makes it 100% completely clear that this is the parent designating a wife for the child. Okay? Now, um, why is that something that a, a father would do? Aside from sort of the fact that it was happening in that society, why do you want to give your child a, a, a husband or a wife or a spouse or a partner? Why? So the next generation, good. So this, this allows you to get into the whole business of what's called piria verivia, the, the, um, the being fruitful and multiplying, which leads to more children in the world. Good. Why else? Well, if the, father, or the, if the parent is selecting the future spouse, then they get to choose the type of influence that there will be over their grandchildren, so they make sure they follow the same you know, purity of belief or thoughts. Great. So, so in other words, a parent is going to look for certain qualities, and, um, and I will tell you something interesting. A parent theoretically should know their own kid pretty well, and a parent should also know what they care about in terms of values, and what might be a good or who might be a good combination with their own kid. So it's interesting that the parent is given the responsibility for this. Um, think about it this way. Once you are married, according to this kind of a, uh, understanding of civilization, you're set up for life. You've got a household. You can then have your own kids, and you can continue to move on. And in fact, the old joke goes, of course, when did the... When did the Jewish fetus actually become viable? Well, a lot of people say when they graduate from medical school, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think that if you think about it, when someone becomes married, that is the moment in which, you know, and by the way, a married, partnered, there's a million different ways to do it in our society nowadays, but, but when you partner up with somebody or become part of a next unit, that is an important moment, and it's also a moment when there's a certain distance from the parent that starts to be created. And so from this perspective, if you're trying to set up a life, this is the next generation, the next element of that life kind of continuing what you've done. So I think that the idea of taking a, a spouse for someone is a, is a good and important idea. Obviously, we have very different ideas about it in the modern world. We do not necessarily try to tell our kids to, and I've seen very bad examples of people trying to get their kids to marry people in, in very awful ways. Um, but at the same time, there is this sense that you know that kid well, and you might want to actually help them find a spouse. All right. Then notice, however, teach him a trade comes after finding a spouse. I think this is actually backwards, the way we think about it nowadays, right? Because one would actually want to uh, be able to support someone who's your spouse, right? And so there's a, there's a problem with that. But the idea of teaching him a trade <coughs> means if you don't teach him a trade, what happens? He lives at home. <laughs> there you go. And, and, and by the way, the rebound factor these days of people who go off to college and then rebound into, into their parents' home is much higher than it used to be, interestingly enough, because we have some economic challenges and people end up with, you know, not necessarily having good possibilities. Teaching him a trait gives him the ability to support himself. And once he or she has the ability to support themselves, that gives the opportunity for them to have a full life. And so what's happened here is you're giving them each of the elements that they need to live a full life. They have to know all these different things. They have to have these abilities. They have to have this knowledge. They have to have partnership. They have to have the ability to support themselves. Once you've given all those things, then your role as parent, in a sense, is not terminated, but is certainly almost complete. You were going to say something. The, um, 
I would also think that there may be a little bit of a <laughs> better child if they know that mom or dad or mommy and dad are going to pick my spouse. Mm -hmm. I better be good because I don't <laughs> right. want them to pick somebody that I don't like. like right. Because if, if the child's behavior is better, they may feel that they may have more influence than less influence if they're, yeah. you know, I, more well, of a I, challenge. Yeah, I mean, I don't see picking a spouse as kind of a deterrent, you know, like using, you know, using it that way. But I do think it's, it's interesting because um, to have that taken out of your hands is fascinating, right? And I had a very, very dear friend actually in college um, who ended up becoming uh, part of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and actually uh, was set up by his rabbi or, you know, by his rabbi, I think it was his rabbi's wife actually, and off they went. And, you know, that was kind of it. And, um, and I, I, I recognize the long-standing Jewish traditions that that represents. But at the same time, I, I find it um, I find it hard actually to think about having done that because uh, in North America, obviously, we have I would say the whole Western world we have these I, these sort of ideal understandings of love and all these other things and finding the right partner and everything else, which are ways we live generally. But there are other ways to do it, and I thought that was fascinating to see that happen. So, I I had read something that said that said that people that are set up in arranged marriages have a much higher um, yeah. Less divorce, so much higher rate of divorce of people that right. find each other by love. So what I want to what I want to say about that is that survey has to be handled carefully for a couple of different reasons because most of the folks who get who are in arranged marriages live in very insular, closed communities, and it's hard for them to consider getting divorced in certain ways, right? So I don't know how much of an impact. I'm not saying it doesn't. It could very well have that impact. I just don't know how to quantify that. Uh, because because of that factor, you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Plus, the other thing is that if you live in a more open society, you're exposed to divorce and you see it as an option more potentially. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's kind of factors on both sides that might lead to. Uh, so so I'm not sure, and I'm certainly not a sociologist, and I don't want to try. I don't I don't even play one on TV. And, uh, <laughs> Do you have a question or comment? I have a comment. We just read uh, Yitro in the Tenth Commandment, which ta which talks about the prohibition of coveting. Mm -hmm. I believe says. Your neighbor's house, and then the, and then their spouse. Yes, and then uh, their in, ass in, and their in, in, in that in property. that order, which would imply the the kind of corrective you're saying to the statement that mm -hmm. first you establish a household, and then you then you find interesting. Yeah, and I, I will I will pile on to your comment because it's a good comment. There's um there's an interesting way of reading that commandment too, because in a sense everything in that commandment is is set up as property. And I have I, I bristle a little bit at that, right? You have a house, you have a wife, you have an ass, you have you know other animals, and and uh, you know I modern folks don't tend to use those uh, you know those kind of um, frames the same way they used to in the ancient world, um, but at the same time uh, I think the idea of coveting can be can certainly be something we apply. I mean I think it's a very important idea not to not to feel sad about what you have compared to somebody else in so many ways. I think that's that's a very important. Okay, let's go on. There's one more thing I want to point out to you. Rabbi Yehuda said, anyone who does not teach his child, oh, I'm sorry, and uh, back up, and there are those who say to teach him to swim. So that's a great thing. Now, by the way, Brandeis University to this day has a requirement. Anybody go to Brandeis? Okay. You remember the requirement that you I had? I was on the swim team. <laughs> you were you were. You're Yosef, as they say. You've checked that box. So um, my sister went to Brandeis. She was not on the swim team, and she had to complete that requirement, actually. And, um, and so it's fascinating that actually, but I want to point out to you, this is a minority opinion. It says there are those who say, 
And when you see that in the Talmud, that means that some people believe it, but not everybody believes it. So the reason why this makes sense to me, and the reason why also later Jewish law does codify this in a way that makes it close to a requirement, is because learning how to swim protects you. And in fact, later commentaries have great comments about this. What if you are walking to school and you have to cross a log over a river or something like that? If you fall in and your parents have taught you to swim, you will be able to save yourself. So the whole idea here is self-preservation. And we'll see how that plays out in a couple of different ways in some of the later texts. Knowing how to protect yourself, knowing how to save yourself if you get into trouble. Um, and I, I would say the big movement that we talk about these days is the, the resilience movement. The idea that you can have a crisis and come back from it. Um, that's what I think teaching people how to swim really represents. Go ahead. Just that, uh, of course, the metaphorical importance of saving oneself is so important. And here in Arizona, it's also just a very real physical issue. I mean, everybody has a pool, yeah. and the issue around gated pools and teaching one's children to swim when they're young is mm -hmm. a life-saving issue for, for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it is all over the place uh, because you know there are opportunities to, to drown yeah. everywhere, right? I mean, there, I don't know what the statistics are in this, but people drown in their own bathtub right. from yeah. time to time. So I think the idea of you know safety, and I would expand this obviously just beyond swimming, but you know teaching a child not to stick their fingers in an electrical outlet, teaching a child not to use drugs. There's a million different things that you can think about that would be analogies and extensions of this idea. So next, Rebbe Yehuda, another minority opinion, said, anyone who does not teach his child a craft teaches him to be a thief. Really to be a thief? Rather, it is as if he teaches him or her to be a thief. It is as if he teaches him or her to be a thief. Now, I want to tell you one very interesting thing. The word for thief, uh, you know the Yiddish word for thief, which is kind of like the Hebrew word for thief, aganis. Everybody seems to know that word. <laughs> Everybody seems to know one also, more. but there's aganis, right? Aganav in Hebrew uh, is, means somebody who steals something. That's the biblical term that's used, and that's the term that we find in rabbinic literature. However, here they use a different term. They use the term listot, okay? Listut, meaning to, uh, to someone who will steal, and listut comes from listos, in Greek, which means someone who robs you or steals from you. So what's interesting is, I think there's a whole other agenda to this term. It's not that you're just going to become a thief. If you don't teach your child a craft, they're not going to have the money, and they're going to have to seek other ways to get the money they need. Everybody's going to need money. Everybody's going to need the ability to support themselves. And the fact that we use a Greek word here, I think, has another implication, which is, they might go off of the Jewish path and go in directions that are not Jewish any longer. So not only would they become a thief, they'd become a Roman thief, God forbid, a million times, right? And that could lead to all sorts of other troubles. So the goal here, and also, not that they actually teach them to be a thief, but that the absence of the ability to support yourself creates the opportunity for someone to have to go in that direction. So this is another way to think about what it means for a parent and what a parent has to do to a child. A parent has to actually make sure that a child has what they need to support themselves. Otherwise, if they don't, they're going to find other ways to do the things they need to do. And so that has to be a, you have to give them what they need to be able to survive. If you don't, they're going to find other ways. So how does this um, uh, work with the Haredi who don't so often tell their children, spend your entire life studying Torah, and they don't teach them a trade, and they don't want them to work, and so not perhaps be beggars, but do they think about the implications of this? Listen, one of the great things about Talmud is that every Jew in the world has this same text in front of them. 
and everyone has to interpret it in a way that they see fit, right? And so, look, I think, um, I will tell you that, that uh, there are organizations now in Israel, many of them, that are doing great work at helping ultra-Orthodox Jews who don't have the other skills because they may have studied in places where they didn't learn computer science or math or, you know, uh, being able to write in, in modern Hebrew and English. Um, there are now organizations that help folks uh, to be able to find jobs and to be able to get the skills that they need. Um, and I think there are many, many parts of the ultra-Orthodox community where they have this understanding that you need to have an appropriate amount of set of skills. Um, but not every part. And, um, and for the other parts that don't do that, uh, the thing I would say is, let's uh, applaud them for their commitment to Torah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's very good that they're committed to Torah. I, I personally would think that you have to do both. Um, but everybody's going to make that decision based on how they read these texts in their own way. Okay, so um, that sums up the Babylonian Talmud Kiddushin 29a. Obviously, lots more to talk about in there. I want to move on to some other texts. And by the way, this is the most common text about the obligations of parents to children. You may have seen it before. Now we're going to go really rogue, and we're going to look at some other obligations that are not quite so normal and not the sort of thing that people have studied usually. So take a look with me at the Babylonian Talmud Hulim. 84b, this is a section of the Talmud that talks about what's kosher and what's not kosher, including a great example, one of my favorite examples of the kind of stuff that shows up in this, in this uh, tractate. Let's say you happen to be cooking a beef stew and you walk by and you drop a piece of cheese into it. What in the world do you do then? Okay? Anybody know the answer? Yeah. It's 160th. So if, you have, if it's bigger than 160th of the whole pot, uh, then the whole thing's not good. If it is less than 160th, you're fine, okay? So just in case that ever happens to you. Okay, so these are the sorts of things. Uh, here's another great one. This is one of my favorite ones from Kulin. What happens if a cow dies, you cut it open, and you find an udder full of, full of milk? Think about that for a while. Because the cow, dead cow, is flagic. Actually, let's say you, you, sh you, actually, it shouldn't die. You slaughtered it, let's be clear. You slaughter the cow, Inside, you find an udder fill of milk. It actually is fleshic milk. Think about that for a while. Cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened to me the other day. Did that happen to you? Yeah, just the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the kind of great stuff you find in the top. Anyway, in the middle of all this stuff about milk and meat and everything else, I should have thought of that before, right? <laughs> anyway, um, before, before we, you know, in the middle of all this, we get to something interesting, which also deals with eating and drinking and a variety of other things. It's a tangent in the middle of this Talmudic passage, but it's very, very beautiful. So, Rabbi Avira said, and sometimes it was said in the name of Rabbi Ami, and sometimes in the name of Rabbi Asi, uh, which means, by the way, we don't know who really said it, okay? That just means there's lots of traditions being passed around, we don't know. Could have been one of them being told by others, who knows? What does this text mean? And this is a text actually from Psalm 112, verse 5. All goes well with a person who lends generously, who conducts business affairs with equity. Right? A beautiful verse in Psalm 112 that basically says, if you do the right thing, things will go well for you. Okay? Watch how it gets interpreted in the Talmud. This means people should eat and drink less than their means, dress and cover themselves according to their means, and honor their spouses and children more than their means. For they, the spouses and children, rely upon them, the parents, and they, the parents, rely upon God. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement that I want to pick apart for a couple of minutes because it's got some really powerful ideas built into it. This means people should eat and drink less than their means. What does it mean to eat and drink less than your means? Think about that for a minute. Well, you don't have one of those big Roman feasts. 
Don't have a giant Roman feast. Yeah, because the culinarium in Jerusalem you shouldn't go to, right? Okay. Don't have a giant Roman feast. Why? I mean, why not? Why eat less than your means? What's What's the value of eating, and why should you not invest an enormous amount of money into eating? You just need to eat as much as you as much as much as you need. I mean, it goes back to the same mana. Okay. That you just need to have as much enough to sustain you with it. Even if you have money for more, you don't mm -hmm. need to right. overdo it. Right. So you can get by, you can survive easily on a reasonable amount of food and on food that isn't necessarily fancy. Right? You can you can survive on food that is moderate. Okay? So survival, <coughs> great. What else? What happens to food when you eat it? Let's let's get gross a little bit here. So what happens to food when you eat it? Hopefully you digest it. Hopefully you digest it, yeah, right? And then what happens? Yes, you excrete it, okay? So you eat food, you digest it, and you excrete it. How long does that process take usually? Depends on the food. Two GI jobs here. Yes, I agree. It depends on the food, depends on the restaurant, you know, the whole thing. So yeah, so the idea here is that food, food goes through you rather rapidly, right? It's going to go through you in a day or two at the most. Uh, if it doesn't, you should see one of the one of the talented GI docs who are here. But but the point is that food goes through you quickly and it's over. Okay? Even the most amazing meal, right? I live in New York City, they have decent restaurants in New York City. You can go to a decent restaurant, have an incredible meal in New York City, and you know, you may have a memory of a meal, but it's it's gonna be gone pretty quickly. And it's really gone from you pretty quickly. So the, the challenge here, the interesting thing I think that this passage is pointing to, and we'll see how it builds. People should eat and drink less than their means. Don't invest in things that don't last. The question is, what's lasting? What is it that matters in a long-term sort of way? Investing in food, and uh, you know, and by the way, we have a crazy food culture in this country and in, in other countries. I mean, I hope there are no restaurateurs in, this, in, the, in the place today, but I think you know, there's a really interesting question about what you get back from your investment. If you invest in food, it's gone pretty quickly. You might have a nice memory. You might even have a lovely evening with people you care about, but the food isn't what's important. You could do that over a casserole. You know, you could do that over a couple of pieces of bread in your house together. Um, the food isn't what makes it. And so it's an interesting point, and I think a good critique for us to think about, how lasting is this? Let's go on to the next one. Um, by the way, also, one other thing I want to throw in. Eating and putting on a big dinner with that's fancy is also a way of showing that you're a big shot. And there's a kind of way of sort of building yourself up that's mm -hmm. built into this. Um, and that's also another piece I think that's in there. We'll see how that develops anyway. Yes? So I just want to take you on a, a little uh, tangent, uh, Rabbi Pang, and, and, yeah. and share a, a, a favorite, uh, favorite story that Boober tells that I think really speaks to a different perspective on this issue. Great. So uh, Martin Boober tells a story of, you know, the, the Rebbe and the shamans who show up at the home of you know the story the rich yeah the richest guy in town mm -hmm. and uh, say you know you're 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 uh, living so modestly you you're so have so much great means you should be eating right. meat and drinking wine mm -hmm. and you know why why is that well because if the wealthiest person thinks they can live on bread and water then they're going to think that the poor can live on stone right. so so that's kind of the the, the, the counter argument to Absolutely. say that you should eat. Mm -hmm. 
um, according to your means, at least, not less than your means. Right. Absolutely. And that, that is a question of poverty and a question of making sure that you have the ability to care about others and help them when necessary. And it's a great story, and I love it. Um, it is the opposite point of the story. There's no question. So um, we've once again proven that Judaism has more than one opinion on absolutely everything. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's go on to the second level of this. Um, the, other, the second level is dress and cover themselves according to their means. Now here's an interesting thing. Clothing lasts a little bit longer than food, right? You, I can get a good year or two out of a suit if I take, it, take good care of it. And you know, I can get more years. If I, if I wear it over and over every day, which people did in the ancient world, it wouldn't last that long. But in the modern world, you, have, you can have multiple clothes in your closet, and you can wear them all, and they can last for quite a long time. Much longer, obviously, than food. So here's the interesting point here. Dress and cover yourselves according to your means for two reasons. One is, you should take care of your clothing. Your clothing is something that will go on for a little bit longer, and so you should dress and cover yourselves according to your means, but you should also not put on clothing that makes you look like somebody you aren't. Whether it's dressing down to look poor when you're actually rich, or whether it's dressing up to look rich when you're actually poor. Because you're sending a message to people about who you are. Clothes actually do matter, according to the Talmud, which is kind of funny. I would have thought maybe they would have dismissed them. But you should dress in a manner that is appropriate to who you are and your level in society, basically. All right? Um, third, honor their spouses and children more than their means. For they, the spouses and children, rely upon them, the parents, and they, the parents, rely upon God. Here's where, when it comes to investment, you should really invest more than your means. You should invest in parents and children and spouses. You should invest in taking care of the people you care about. Why? Because that investment is an investment that will actually return on investment. Um, I always talk about my children and waiting for the ROI on my children, right, the return on investment. We're not quite there yet. I'm still hoping it'll come around at some point. And that's actually not true at all. The return on investment is not a fiscal return on investment. It is a love return on investment. It is a being proud of what your children are doing. There's a million different kinds of returns on investment. And the idea here is that you get much greater return and much more long-term return. And you see this in children who take care of their parents when they're ill at the end of their life. You see this in the loving relationships that you have with children and grandchildren. Um, probably your kid's calling you right about now, I would imagine, right? So, you know, so the goal here is to think about what's more long-term and what matters the most. And that's exactly what this text is telling us to do. And the reminder at the end of this text is they, spouses and children, rely upon the parents, and they, the parents, rely upon God. What you invest in, God will invest back in you. There's a sense of reward and punishment based on how you treat your children. That's built into this passage. Um, you know, it's interesting, and I hadn't thought of it in this way, but uh, look at the things that we take out loans for, or which we save for decades for. It's our children's education, right? Other than maybe buying a, a house or a car or a business loan, we, we typically don't do that, but we yeah. we literally do more than our means, i.e. we borrow money yeah. nice. to, um, nice. to take care of our children. Yes, so by the way, going to a fancy restaurant and putting it on a layaway plan or a credit card <laughs> would not be something the Talmud would advocate because it's not important and it's not long-term, right? Maybe buying a suit that can allow you to work in a business or something like that might be something you could justify, potentially. Um, but investment in children and spouses and other people in your family clearly, clearly justified. So it's a very interesting sense of mm -hmm. priority. So what I want to really bring out of this passage is priorities matter for two reasons. One, because you focus on the things that matter, but you also model for the next generation what matters. And both of those are very important. And I always have trouble 
There are people I know who will buy the nicest new Mercedes, which is a whole other problem, but they'll, they'll buy a wonderful Mercedes for themselves every two years, and they will send their kids to schools because they're cheaper. And I always wondered about that when I see people do that. I have to say, you know, where are your priorities? And that's the question. The question is, everybody's going to make those judgments, everybody's going to determine what they should invest in or not, but the Talmud's pushing us to make sure we make sure that we invest in the right thing. Let's go on to the next text, unless somebody has a comment or a question on this before we go. Okay. Um, Rebbe Zera, Babylonian Talmud Sukkot, which is a whole section on the laws of Sukkot and how you build them and all that. Rebbe Zera said, a person should not promise to give a child something and then not give it, because in this way the child learns to lie, as it is said, they taught their tongues to speak falsehood. Um, very short statement here, but one that I find to be incredibly important. I'm going to tell you how I messed up on observing this one. So I had uh, really wonderful kids, and I was uh, I was a young dean at the Hebrew Union College you know, many many years ago. You know, and um, I had little kids, and um, I used to have an office upstairs in our house, which was filled with books, and I'd go and do work at night. And what would happen was. I would come home and there would be email to take care of or things I needed to return or books I needed to read or a lesson I had to prepare for the next day or whatever it was. Um, so um, I would have dinner with my family, um, which was later than it should have been because I got delayed coming home. And then I would kiss my kids a little bit and then they'd go up and have a bath or whatever it was and I'd go upstairs and I'd start to go to work and I'd have 30 emails, 40 emails, whatever it was that I had to do. And my kids would come up, and they would say, hey, Dad, can you come put us to bed, or can you play with us? And what I would do, almost invariably, until I ran into this text, was I would say, I'll be down in a few minutes. Okay? And then I never came down, because I got caught up in other things, right? And um, I realized I ran into this text not long after that, sort of as that whole process was going. And I realized that by doing that, I was actually teaching them to lie. Right? I was teaching them that it's okay to tell things that are not the truth, and I was devastated to think that I was participating in that with my children. Because the reality was, I wasn't coming down in 10 minutes, right? So there were two ways I tried to adjust that, and I'm not perfect at it even to this day, but luckily they've moved out of the house, so I'm okay now. Um, <laughs> you know, the two ways I tried to change that was, I tried to offer more realistic assessments of when I would be able to come downstairs. And there were times I said, I got an emergency brewing, and I can't talk to you now, or I can't be with you right now, but I want to come down as soon as I can, play with mom for a little bit, or whatever it is and I'll come down. And I made sure I got myself out of that place and downstairs at a, at a reasonable time. And there were other times when I just made sure I didn't go upstairs until after they went to bed. And I just didn't put myself in that situation. Now, this is my example. There are examples of every parent and grandparent. Uh, everyone has this in their lives of what it is that we do, um, where, we, where we really have the right desire to actually want to be with our kids, and the right desire to actually want to do things for them, but we also have other pressures. And I think that's something, um, I'll, I'll give you another quick example. Um, we have a little game we play in the family, in our family. When we go to a <coughs> dinner, you know, out, not Shabbos, Shabbos is pretty sacred for us, but when we go, you know, on a Wednesday night, let's say we go out to dinner or we even have dinner at home. Um, we all take our cell phones or we put them in the center of the table and whoever touches their cell phone first, they lose and they have to do the dishes. <laughs> Okay. And that's a really nice way of basically saying we are going to actually be present in this moment and not lie to one another that we're actually thinking about other things. We're going to actually focus on one another and make sure we do this. I think actually if we could do that with families across North America, we'd be in a much better position in the way we treat each other and the way we think about you know, what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a kid, 
and the kinds of relationships that we could develop. Sure. I think it's obvious, but just to state that I think this text also is uh, about, at least in part, kids are watching. Rabbi Shmuley and Cantor Woolman and I all kids about the same age, mm -hmm. and I have come to believe that we should not send spies into foreign countries. We should send two-year-olds because they don't miss anything. Yeah. They don't they miss do anything. Not. It's they like not. you know. So, and I think you know, they're just they're always watching. Even Absolutely. when we think they're and always listening. And always yeah. listening. And that yes. is, and, and you will find, as I'm sure you have, that they will throw those things back in your face because they figure out the illogic that you have applied, yeah. um, and they respond to it. There's no question they're watching, and um, and that's a really high and difficult standard to live up to, frankly. So uh, actually, what's going to save North America is not people putting their cell phones in the center of the table. It's getting them to be sitting down at the table having dinner in the first, in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the yeah. first that's step. Huge. That's huge. <laughs> and I think you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's the question. And, um, and think about, by the way, the mixed messages kids get when parents say, I care about you, but they don't have any time with them, right? I mean, that, that is very, very difficult, and it's teaching them to lie. Thank you. All right, let's go on to the next side. Um, here we get to some very interesting, um, very interesting examples. And this is actually uh, one of my favorite, what you might call, ethical wills in the Talmud. An ethical will is more of a medieval term, actually. And it was a term where people who, when they were about to die, wrote a list of ethical precepts that they wanted to share with their children. So here we have an early version of this, kind of undeveloped in certain ways, but actually quite nicely developed in other ways, from Rebbe Akiva, who was commanding seven things to his son, Rabbi Yehoshua, and it shows up in Pesachim, which is a section on Passover, but again, sort of randomly, tangentially, it comes into the, um, into the section here uh, on Passover. And I want to share with you, uh, some of these are absolutely hilarious and really interesting, and some of them are incredibly powerful in terms of what we're leaving to the next generation. We talk about inheritance all the time, uh, estates, things like that, and that's the monetary side of it. But the inheritance that is given from a parent to a child is actually much more powerful on the ethical side. And there are things that I do in my life because I watch my parents do them, because I watch my grandparents do them, and they have created, um, I would say, ethical boundaries for me and ethical ideas and ideology that go with me everywhere I go. And I think that all of us can, no doubt, look back to the earlier generation and say, what did we learn from them? What do we take from them? And how do we, um, you know, how do we put that into light? So. Our rabbis taught, which tells us it's in the earliest part of the Talmud. Rabbi Akiva commanded seven things to his son, Rabbi Yehoshua. My son, do not sit in the busiest part of town and study. So I can read this in two ways. The first is, Rabbi Yehoshua, being the son of Rabbi Akiva, may want to lord it over everybody else and be kind of, you know, hey, I'm the big Talmud scholar, right? And sit in the middle of town, and that's not a nice thing to do. So it may be a humility conversation we're having here. The other conversation may be good study habits, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that you're sitting in the middle of town and people are going to interrupt you, um, sort of like all those texts and Facebook messages and things like that that show up. Set up time so you can actually concentrate. Uh, and by the way, studies show that the American uh, attention span is now somewhere around eight seconds. It's <laughs> dropping and dropping and dropping. And uh, that's because of interruptions. Uh, it is very difficult for people to stop and focus. And if that's the case, I think we could read this very much in the, in the order of, you know, how it is that um, how it is we make sure we focus. I'm sorry. What are we talking? What are we talking about? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> um, second, and by the way, I'm not a luddite. I like technology. Alan knows that. But I but I think you know the idea is that um, that we have to be judicious about the decisions we make. And and by the way, helping kids have great study habits is a very important thing. 
Um, you know, some kids are, are very good at sitting in noisy places and studying, and that's great for them. Other kids are better at quiet places. We have to get to know our kids and figure out what it is that they need from us in terms of studying them. Yeah, hi. Because I'm just thinking another part of that could be, um, I, don't want to, I don't want you to put yourself in a place of danger, you know, worrying about your children's well-being, mm-hmm. being in the center of town where it's really busy, yeah. especially given what happened to our idea themselves. Yeah. Uh, you may be looking to protect your son. That may well be. That's a very good way to read this, too, because Rebbe Akiva, as we all know, was flayed or was, uh, you know, basically died effectively and um, uh, at the hands of the Romans. And so by doing this, he becomes a symbol that could be dangerous. It could be dangerous for Rebbe Hoshua. That's, that's a very nice way to read it, too. All right, second, uh, do not live in a town where its leaders are scholars. <coughs> I think this is a fantastic statement. Mm-hmm. What do you think it means? Israel. What? Israel? <laughs> <laughs> Well, why shouldn't you live in a town where its leaders are... What's the problem with scholars, Church Scholar? What's the problem? Ivory Tower. Ivory Tower. So scholars are really good, and I could see this happening, okay? You live in a town that needs to have its pipes replaced, okay? (laughs) So what are the scholars going to do? They're going to sit down and they're going to say, well, you know, the properties of a copper pipe versus a plastic pipe versus a metal pipe, other metal pipe, well, we can look, let's model that out for a couple of years and figure out how it is that we actually can, uh, you know, put the best pipe. Oh, and how deep should the pipe be buried in the ground? Well, does it freeze here? How many times does a 100-year flood come through? You know, and by the time you're finished, it could be a 25-year project to replace <coughs> two pipes in, the, you know, in front of your house. I've actually had this experience. I work in places where scholars <laughs> so Isn't there another issue that my scholar Sure, of course. Their way. Of course. There's that too. There's con- you know conflict and different opinions and everything. <coughs> so the point is here, there are, there's different kinds of leadership that are valuable to old Rabbi Akiva is saying to his son. The leadership of scholars is important. Scholars help you think about things in a deeper, more important way. But there's also the kind of leadership that actually sometimes gets things done, not in a theoretical sense. There's a difference between theoretical and practical. So if you're choosing a town in which you can live, go to a town where there's good practical leadership. On the eve of the Iowa caucuses, uh, I will say nothing else about that. Just want to point out to you that uh, there are Talmudic precedents that should be thought about even in what's happening this week. What? That's not our problem. I don't think that's our problem, but I do think the question of practical leadership is a very important question. You know, and, and so you can see here, there's a very interesting development here that Rabbi Akiva, who is no, no que- unquestionably one of the greatest scholars, has respect for people who can actually get other things done. And that also, by the way, has other implications for his son, because it means he can't dismiss people who are not scholars. He has to look at everybody's value and what they can bring to the equation. And that's, I think, important in modeling for his son as well. Yeah? This, uh, there is an influence of, like, because of the Greek section, Socrates and Plato talked about that the scholar needs to be on the top, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and the best you know the best regime that you can have. So, do you think is, this there, is there a, influence a, of uh, like? Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, are you saying because it says just the opposite? Yeah. Right? Well, I think I think it may be countercultural with Greco-Roman ideology. I think that's that's quite possible here. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, the idea of sort of the the cave metaphor that's used and kind of climbing yeah. higher and higher in the cave and leaving everybody else behind and all those those images you know that nobody can understand anything at their low level uh, it's a very different model it's a very different model now by the way there are plenty of examples in the Bavli 
and the rest of rabbinic literature where the rabbis are the winners and everybody else, the Am Haaretz, are not considered very important. So this, this may be a little bit Yotzei Minaklal, or a little bit outside of the regular examples we find. So I think I, it's probably a... You'd have to really look at all the examples to figure out what the point of view is. But here it just doesn't relate. Another interpretation is sure. that his son is a scholar and perhaps he should go someplace where he's needed and rather than being in a town just where there are, are a bunch of scholars. Okay, so yeah. His son's also a rabbi. So. Yeah. yeah, well, look, I think. Uh, you were going to say that? Yeah. You were going to say that? Too many years, too many years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, next time I'm just going to send my wife to teach. Try to get better anyway, too. But, uh, but anyway, this is, uh, yeah, so I think the idea of sort of where you locate yourself. Um, by the way, there are um, there are other texts in the Babylonian Talmud that say you should never live in a town where there aren't where there isn't a Beit Midrash or there aren't mm -hmm. institutions of learning. So this is kind of countercultural from that perspective as well. Okay, let's keep going. Do not enter your own house suddenly, and especially not your neighbor's house. Hmm. Um, why would you want to enter your own house suddenly? Well, in modern times in this yes. country, because someone will shoot you. <laughs> Right, I don't think that was an issue, so, <laughs> so why would someone shoot you if you entered their house? That The issue is similar. Why would someone shoot you if you entered their house? To frighten To frighten So you shouldn't, first of all, induce fear in other people. You should be sensitive enough to others that if you induce, if you, if you come into their house and induce fear, recognize that something bad may happen to you, but you've done a, a negative thing to them, a harmful thing. My wife is extremely startleable, if that's a word. And um, I sometimes walk into a room and scare the living bejesus out of her, if one can do that if you're Jewish. And, uh, and uh, uh, she, uh, she uh, and that necessarily, you could, you could jump on me in the dark and I wouldn't even notice it. It just doesn't, doesn't enter my thinking. Don't try it, but it doesn't enter my thinking in the same way. And it took me a while to get used to the fact that she was, she was so easily startled. Um, and I, I have to adjust for that, you know? Even sort of yelling from one room to another that I'm coming is a good thing to let her know so that she won't be afraid. And so it's a question of understanding people around you and understanding what their needs are and respecting those needs. That's actually something very important to always do. I want to add, however, of course, do not enter your own house suddenly, especially not your neighbor's house. It could also be that someone's in there that needs to leave before you come in and you don't want to get your feelings hurt. That's a terrible way to read this passage, but it's not an impossible way to read it, okay? So, next. Do not go out without shoes. You thought your mother was the first person to say that? <laughs> Talmud was actually the first person to say that, okay? Or maybe not even the first, it may have come earlier. Um, again, self-preservation, making sure you know what to do, what not to do, so that you don't harm yourself, don't step on nails, etc. Rise early to eat in summer because of the heat and in winter because of the cold. Um, get up early and start your day. Don't lie around in bed all the time. However, there are numerous times when teenagers seem to do this, and no matter what their parents say, there's no way to help them avoid it, I've noticed. So the question is, how do you form, again, good habits? How do you make sure people go and do what they need to do and are quite active and you know, committed? Treat your Sabbath like a weekday rather than rely upon other people. Um, this is something that shows up a couple of times in the Talmud. And the idea here is that if you have to borrow money to make a fancy dinner for Shabbat, you're better off treating it like a weekday. Just have a regular dinner rather than relying on others. Again, invest in what you care about, but don't put yourself in debt. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be in trouble because you've had to borrow to make Shabbat. God will understand. Do something that's reasonable for what you can do. Could that mean anything else? I mean, that, that just seems, you know, kind of... It, I suppose it could. Are there other what interpretations else? of it? I don't, not that I've seen, but what else, what else would you recommend? Because I think treat... 
shabbat like a weekday i think about working as opposed to my shabbat dinner and and i'm trying to think the relying upon other people i just yeah i don't i don't think so but i don't think i don't i have not seen that interpretation come out of this in any other setting i suppose it's possible i think it's a little unlikely because the rabbis are pretty they're pretty up on shabbat you know i think so, uh, so I think they would be less interested in having violations of Shabbat. I think it would be... Um, so they mean treat your Shabbat dinner. Yeah. Treat your Shabbat... Well, sh- look, on Shabbat you're supposed to eat and you're supposed to enjoy. Onet Shabbat, the term itself, actually means eating yummy things on Shabbat to, to actually enjoy it. We just we think it's a bunch of pastries, but it's actually a whole concept. And, um, and so the Onet Shabbat, actually, the, the joy of Shabbat is, is done through eating. And um, special dishes, by the way, throughout all of history, there's, there are all these really interesting times where it talks about different kinds of food that were a good representation of Onik Shabbat. In fact, in Morocco, there's a thing called Bastilla, which is a pigeon pie with uh, confectioner sugar and almonds and everything. Really pretty delicious. And uh, that was one of the things that in the Middle Ages and later in Morocco were actually considered to be the thing you should eat. In the rabbinic times, it was fish frying and fish bits. I'm glad I live now, is all I can say. <laughs> um, but the idea here is that it was um, that, that that was the way you celebrated Shabbat, and that was the way you made a differentiation, obviously, in, in other ways, too. So I think, I think that's what it means. <laughs> Lastly, strive to be on good terms with someone upon whom fortune smiles. I think this is a great principle to teach your children, because what does it mean? It means that when somebody's doing well, you're not jealous of them. You actually strive to be on good terms with them. Obviously, there's a... Uh, a reason to do that because you might succeed better in the world by working well with people who are good, who are fortunate. But at the same time, it also means you're not walking around with jealousy and anger all the time. So it's a question of accepting the way things are and being realistic about it. A very very nice principle. So you can see that Rabbi Akiva had a lot to say to his son and a lot of very important statements. So the question I would leave you with from this text is, what is it that you need to say to your kids and your grandchildren? What messages should you be sending to them? What ethical statements? do you want them to live by that you should offer them? Um, and I find too many families where they don't actually have an explicit conversation about things like this. A quick example, every family should be given tzedakah at some level, whatever tzedakah they give. Um, whatever your means are, whatever the ability you have to be able to do this, and your children should be part of that conversation because by doing it with them, you put them in a position of understanding the obligation, the way you set the kind of tzedakah you give, and the priorities that you have. And that doesn't mean they're going to agree with you on absolutely everything, but you've transmitted a message, and they're going to walk throughout the rest of their life knowing that their parents, their grandparents gave tzedakah, and that that was something our family does. I've seen that happen in so many wonderful families, and I've seen the exact opposite happen in other families where they never had the conversation, and the next generation wanders off without any sense that their resources should be used for anything but their own pleasure. And I think it's a very important mistake to be doing. Okay. Last two texts. So Masechet Samachot, which is a kind of extra Talmudic text. It's called uh, one of the, uh, the kind of the, the little tractates, right? Masechet um, Samachot, we have a very interesting case that comes up. A child from B'nai Brak broke a flask. All right? This is not a terrible, terrible offense, but it is something that uh, is undesirable from a parent's perspective. His father threatened to box his ears, okay? That's kind of an old translation, but I couldn't think of a better one. Basically, he was going to whack him in the ear, was the point. Okay? In terror of his father, the child went and killed himself by throwing himself down a well. They came and asked Rabbi Akiva, who ruled no burial rites whatsoever are to be denied him. So let me 
give you the halachic, the, the kind of legal background to all of this and what's going on here. The child from Bnei Brak breaks a flask. His father, as his father, has the right to threaten him or to punish him. But he threatens him. He doesn't punish him. And when he threatens him, the fear of his father is so strong in this child that the child kills himself by throwing himself down a well. All right? They come and they ask Rabbi Akiva the question, because if you are a suicide, you are not, according to rabbinic law, allowed to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. There's, a, by the way, a much more, di there's a very different way to approach that in most, most parts of modern Judaism, where we say if somebody was, were mentally ill enough to commit suicide, then ultimately they were, they were ill, and therefore we didn't allow them to be buried in the cemetery. But in the rabbinic world, it was not, that interpretation was not always applied. So here Rabbi Akiva is saying, because of his father's threat and because the terror that the child had led him to commit suicide, we shouldn't withhold the burial rights from him. We should allow him to have full burial in a Jewish cemetery. Everybody understand? Okay. So um, as a result of this, the sages said, one should never threaten his or her child. One should punish the child at once or else hold his or her peace and say nothing. Fantastic idea. I think it applies, by the way, to employees. It applies to everybody in the world, right? The idea here is... If you are going to punish somebody, don't, do not wait. Punish and move on. Why? I remember growing up as a kid, and I'll lie down on the couch here and tell you about all these things, but I remember growing up as a kid when my mother was really, really angry at something I did. It didn't happen all that much, but did happen, you know, pretty much every week. Um, <laughs> so um, my mother would get really angry about, uh, about something I did. It didn't really happen every week, but something I did was wrong. She would yell and she would say, wait, 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 wait until your father You can all say it together, right? <laughs> wait until your father comes home. All right? And what was interesting about that was, when my father came home, he, you know, something might have happened. I might get punished, whatever it was. You know, and by the way, couples, sometimes it's the mother who's the big punisher. Sometimes it's the father. It varies. You know, but the point is, the waiting is the hardest part. The waiting is difficult because you don't know what's going to happen to you. And therefore, you get frightened about it. And imagining what's going to happen to you is even worse. And the other thing is, if 10, 12 hours go before you get your punishment, um, you've dissociated the punishment from the crime. You know? And so the problem is, you don't then tend to associate the punishment as directly with the crime. And in addition, people may have calmed down or gotten more angry or changed their mind between now and then. So the punishment can rise or fall and be unfair. So the issue here is, when something goes wrong, when punishment is necessary, and by the way, there are times when punishment is necessary. I don't think boxing ears is necessarily what I would advocate, but there have to be realistic things that are taken away sometimes from children for them to understand that something is really wrong. There have to be times when children lose something to understand what the boundaries are. One other example from my family. We are in Australia. We lived in Australia for five and a half months. At one point, we went to a hotel. Uh, we're traveling around in, in uh, the northern part of Australia, a couple of, couple of hours north of Sydney. And um, my kids are behaving like Wildechais, like just the way that, <laughs> that uh, you know, and they're tired and they're hungry and they're just, you know, they're just, they're, and they're in second grade and fourth grade. They're little kids, but they behave like complete animals. And we had kind of a complicated situation about where we had to move and where we had to go and everything. And my wife and I are just at the end of our rope. We cannot stand what's going on. So we sent our kids to bed. It's the one and only time without dinner. <laughs> one time in their entire life because we just couldn't take it anymore. We said, it is time for you to go to bed. 
go upstairs and go to bed. And they said, we haven't had dinner. What do we? I said, that's right. Go to bed. And what's amazing about that is to this day, our kids bring that up <laughs> as if it were the worst penalty of any United States. They were, they were quite well fed. They weren't in any danger, I promise you. But, but they remember this as a, as a time when we actually showed them that there was a consequence to behavior in certain ways. And it actually, I think, had an important impact. Now, I don't advocate doing that on a regular basis. I certainly don't advocate you know, doing it in a way that would be harmful to children. But on the other hand, there are times, and I've experienced this a lot, when there are times when a family, and parents especially, must say to their kids, this is, you know, ad con vatulo, as they would say in the Talmud, up until this point and no further, okay? Mm-hmm. Ah, actually. So the point here is to really say there's something that has to stop and we have to get rid of it, but not to do it in a way that's dissociated from the action. That's one of the problems I think we sometimes have. They have to understand what the activity led to the action. How We have to understand it clearly. Go to the next part. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar said, and this is a decidedly pre-feminist text, for a child and a woman, the left hand should push them away as the right hand draws them near. Very interesting idea that at the same time you're saying to them, stop, go away, you're also bringing them close. There has to be love in the interaction, but there also have to be limits. And that is a very interesting way to think about that what comes up with children, parents, grandparents, children. What are the limits? Where do we set the limits? And how do we make sure they understand we love them? This father no doubt loved his child, and boxing his ears was the way he responded, but he didn't understand the love that he needed. He needed to say, I'm, you know, I understand you broke that glass. You know, here's going to be the penalty. Here's what it is. And not leave the child in that terrible kind of situation of fear and terror. You know? um, so there has to be love and limits. Both of them have to coexist. Last text. From the Babylonian Talmud Kiddushin. Again, right after the first text that we looked at. We have the question also of what do parents get back from their children? And that's a great question, okay? Um, the, our rabbis taught, what is respect and what is honor? And these are two Hebrew words, morah and kibud. Um, these are words that are what children must give to their parents. And I don't necessarily think that what's listed here is exactly what children should give to their parents now. There are lots of other things they should, like IT technical help, you know? That, that, um, but, I, but I think that there's a real serious question here of what parents should expect from their children, and it's a good one. So, respect means that a son should neither stand nor sit in his father's place, nor contradict his words, nor side with his opponent in an argument. Very interesting moment comes in many families when a child starts to develop their own opinions and stands up against their parents. There's a, a, a beauty to that in a certain way and a terribleness to that in a certain <laughs> way. Because, um, you know, you, you, um, you have a sense, there's also a section in the Babylonian Talmud where, where God says to the people of Israel, my children have defeated me and lapsed. Right? That the idea that you've grown, your kids have grown enough to really defeat you. I remember um, my mom taught me how to play chess and I just beat her every time after she taught me. <laughs> And I always felt a little badly about that, but I think she was happy about it because it was like, oh, look, he's not bad, you know? And that was kind of fun. And I've had experiences with my own children, as probably we all have, where they do something and they figure it out, you know, they catch you in a contradiction or they point out something that doesn't make sense and they actually help you grow. So the interesting question here is the balance, right? If you respect a parent, you neither sit nor stand in your parent's place because that's their place. Think about the armchair your parents sits in, right? Think about the place at the table 
where you would have sat, right? That you wouldn't sit in your parents' place. The idea is to give respect that way, not to contradict words, nor side with his opponent in an argument. And I think this is more public. In other words, mm -hmm. if you're doing it to embarrass a parent, that's not okay. If you're engaging in the sort of play and back and forth with the parent, that's the sort of thing that can be absolutely incredibly exciting when you see the kind of reasoning that your child has to, uh, to share with you. My son is a journalism major. Sometimes I send him stuff and he edits it and I'm pretty excited about that because he's helpful, right? My daughter, a, um, a major in art, in art history, um, when I go to a museum with her and she walks around and points out something interesting that I never would have seen in a painting, that's amazing, you know? And that's the excitement of helping your kids transcend you, in effect, and move beyond where you are. That's, that's beautiful. But at the same time, they should do that in a respectful way. They shouldn't do it to harm you. Um, and that's, I think, an interesting balance. And, and that's what the word really, um, mora means, which is a kind of interesting word. Mora actually is the thing that we're supposed to do to God. It's a combination of awe and fear, um, you know, and respect. So honor, on the other side, means that a son must give his father food and drink, clothe him and cover him, bring him in and take him out. And this, I think, applies to your old age. When you're older, these are things that a child should do for you. Um, and there is, by the way, an analogy here to the list we saw at the beginning, right? Just as you set your child up to have a full life, your child should now help you continue and end your life and be involved in that. There's a beautiful kind of circularity to the whole thing here. Um, so, food and drink, clothe him and cover him, bring him in and take him out. They asked him at whose expense, Rabbi Yehuda said the expense of the son, Rabbi Nathan Bar Oshaya said at the expense of the father, the rabbis ruled it must be at the expense of the father, which is also, I think, a great point, mm -hmm. that here at the end of life, the parent is still the parent. The parent is still responsible in a certain way for himself or herself and the next generation, but the responsibility of what a child can do for the parent starts to change. And you get to a moment in life where the children become the people who take care of the parents. And the whole cycle is, in a sense, complete. And then the next generation comes along after that. So I hope what you've taken away from tonight is that our Jewish tradition has a lot of very interesting suggestions, I would say, um, as to how we should think about parenting the next generation, but also what the obligations of the next generation to parents are as well. Um, and um, as I said at the beginning, and as I hope you've seen, um, there are so many beautiful pieces of our tradition that have a lot to say to us in the modern world and a lot of ways to help us think in deeper ways about the roles of parenting um, that I think uh, there's plenty more, obviously. Yeah, I, it's hard to exhaust tradition in just one quick session, and we certainly mm -hmm. haven't. Um, but the hope is that this will kind of whet your appetite to do some continued study in these areas because I think there's really a lot to learn. So I thank you very much for studying with me tonight. And, uh, <laughs> And I want, I want to welcome, if you're comfortable with it, um, I am completely comfortable. not only to touch on these subjects, but also since we have the president of HUC here, if you have questions about his work or the reform movement, if you're comfortable with that, very comfortable. Uh, this might be a nice opportunity to, but maybe we'll take another 10 minutes if that's okay for folks, yeah. Okay. Uh, assuming we have questions. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick one off. With, when you think about the, the scholarship back in the Talmudic era, and think about the type of scholarship that we have in community college, you know, pe you know people like, like Mark writing responsa and so on. Is there a way that you could, in a simple way, characterize essential differences between how they view uh, Torah scholarship and how we view it? Hmm. Interesting. Um, 
So um, Chorus Scholarship, I think, is, is always a combination of the beautiful inherited tradition that the Jewish people has always had. Um, well, actually, I want to use I'm going to use a metaphor first to start with that. This will actually be be lovely. Larry Hoffman, Rabbi Dr. Larry Hoffman, who's a professor who's probably spoken here, I would imagine, before. Um, he uses a beautiful metaphor, which is he, he says that look, um, when you think about what Jewish tradition is and what Jewish scholarship is, it's like a wet painting. Okay. Now why? The wet painting is basically like this. Somebody started a long time ago a beautiful painting, and it's wet paint, and it gets handed from generation to generation. And as you take it, your fingers smudge or move around the paint a little bit, or maybe you retouch a little piece of it based on your new perspective and your new understanding that's a little different from the, the original creator. And over time, that painting continues to grow and to change and to move and to be different. But the same outlines of the original painting are still there, and many of the pieces that are still meaningful to the original creator are still meaningful to us, even though things may have changed so that metaphor works for me very beautifully for the following reason. I think that the rabbis of the Talmud had a beautiful inherited tradition in the Torah and in the entire Tanakh and in the interpretive pieces that followed that, whether orally or written writing. And they played with that tradition in all sorts of really interesting creative ways. There are times when the rabbis of the, of the Talmud said, you know what, um, there, here's a piece of the Torah that I'm really uncomfortable with. I'll give you an example. The idea that you have a rebellious son. They didn't bring that text. No, it's I, I, right. I mean, there's a, there's a text basically called the Ben Sorero More. It comes in Deuteronomy. We read it when all the kids are away at camp, interestingly. <laughs> um, and it basically says that if you have a, a stubborn and rebellious son and you cannot get him to follow rules, then eventually if he's you know, bad enough, and the rabbis define this in certain ways, that he has to drink a lot and eat a lot of meat and a variety of other things. If he does those things, eventually you can take him to the elders at the city gate, they can adjudicate him and stone him to death. Everyone in the community stones him to death. Now, the Talmud, in uh, a section of the Talmud, basically is dedicated to putting rules around this that make it impossible, really, for anyone to hit all the different categories of violation one would have to hit to qualify for that penalty. And Rashi, even, I believe it is, says, Lohayu um, uh, that this, this never took place, this never happened, okay? And so what's interesting is there you've got something that the rabbis say, I, we can't do this anymore. We're gonna, we're gonna kind of move away from actually making this an applicable kind of law. And there are lots of examples like that. You've got other kinds of examples where something that used to happen in a certain way now happens in a different way. So uh, the biggest set of examples is when the temple is destroyed, we don't have the ability to do sacrifices and a variety of other practices that we used to do. So what do we do? We set up synagogues, right? We set up prayer, and that becomes the way we communicate with God instead. So, um, so there's, you know, some things get dismissed, some things get innovated, and some things continue on. You're, people are still wearing tefillin and talis, and people are still getting married in ways that are very consonant with what happened before. You know, so there are all these different possible possibilities of choices. And I think the rabbis made many of the same choices that we did, and there's a plurality of different kinds of uh, you know, decisions that don't all agree with one another. And I think at HUC, we're doing the same thing. I think, by the way, JTS and YU and all the other institutions are doing this too, and they may choose different choices and different ways to do this. But that's exactly, uh, it, it's a very similar process, I think. The one last thing I will say is that we are, as the rabbis were, we are influenced by the surroundings of women that every scholar is influenced by the surroundings and by what's running around their society at that particular time in, in lots of different ways. 
By the way, if folks don't know what he's the head of Jewish studies at Harvard. Okay. Um, excellent question. So I would say a couple of things. First of all, um, I think that um, the denominational structures that we have seen for a very long time in uh, North American Jewry are changing subtly in interesting ways. So um, I anticipate that we're going to end up with kind of two major, two major foci of Judaism. One is going to be the Orthodox, right? And the other is going to be some sort of reform, conservative, amalgam, liberal, I don't know what to call it exactly. Um, and I'm thinking it's going to be the reform movement because we have very, very large number of people. We have a large number of synagogues. Um, think certain synagogues are doing fantastically. Other synagogues are not doing as fantastically. I think we'll see some weeding out of certain organizations that haven't changed and grown with the times. Um, but, I, but I'm positive that there's going to be a very firm and good and strong core for the reform movement. And I think... Um, <coughs> That actually is based around a couple of different things. We have a tremendous openness to, um, to anyone who's interested in Judaism, which is, I think, laudable and very, very positive. We have um, a growing, uh, you know, an ongoing commitment to social justice, which is, I think, very attractive to people. We have um, tremendous worship capability and all sorts of interesting things happening in worship. Um, we have good education, but not good enough, and I think that's something we have to work on. Um, and I think we have strong core institutions that actually bring the community together around important issues. I'll give you a quick example of that. Just this morning, uh, the cabinet of Israel, in an interesting way, approved this new worship space for, uh, for the reform of the Are you answering my movement. second question? What? <laughs> you are answering my second question. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. So, uh, and I think, I think it's very exciting. Now, it's not built yet. I'll be interested to see it get get built. I think yeah. it'll get built. I've been surprised before. But I you know but but I think that so just does everybody know what he's talking does everybody about? Everybody know what that is? Okay. So the, the Kotel sure, yeah. the Kotel has a has a male and a female section in front of it. There's a place over on, on the side called Robinson's Arch. Uh, the cabinet approved effectively a committee to run Robinson's Arch, which is not an Orthodox committee. It's the first time that any part of the of the Kotel has been uh, run by a non Orthodox group. Uh, and it's not under the auspices of the chief rabbi anymore, which is of the rabbi of the Kotel anymore, which is interesting. Um, and there is uh, some interesting architectural plans that are being formulated to make a very beautiful space for um, combined male and female worship and a variety of other things that we'd like to do there, and an egalitarian prayer space that will be open 24 hours a day. Um, so, it, look, if McDonald's can do it, so can we. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so I think the, uh, the goal here, honestly, though, I think is um, to think about the relationship between Israel and the progressive Jews in North America, which are the vast majority of Jews. And so the question is, how do you build that relationship in a positive way? I have to tell you, I ordained five reform rabbis in November in Israel. We're almost at 100 reform rabbis. Next year or two, we're going to reach 100 reform rabbis in Israel. They're out there doing weddings. They're out there doing amazing stuff in the state of Israel. People, believe it or not, fly to Cyprus and get a civil marriage and then come back to Israel and do their weddings with reform rabbis by the hundreds. 
and yet the state doesn't recognize it, right? So that's unfortunate <coughs> is probably an easy way to put it. I could use other words. And, um, uh, and you know, the hope is to be able to find a kind of pluralistic Jewish community that can recognize the value of orthodoxy, the value of reform, the value of everybody you know, in all these different possibilities and actually work together. I think the major problem I'm worried about in North America right now, especially in our Jewish community, is polarization. We are just too angry at each other and too silly about the way we attack people about things. It is ridiculous. There are, there are people who are really committed to Israel who get attacked because of what they believe. That's ridiculous. Um, and we, we should be a lot more careful about that. So um, anyway, all of this goes to say I think we've got a pretty strong future. And I also think the Pew study points to um, the idea of uh, cultural Judaism growing and I think we're good at that. And I think that's another area that we should be thinking about. Not everybody's gonna to come to shul for services in the future Jewish community. I think we have to face that. And so the question is, how do we create other cultural aspects, writing, art, music, dance, you know, that actually allow us to express Judaism in this way? Let's take maybe one more question. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on so long, but the, ma the, the makeup of the students yes. at HUC, how is that Changing is it changing? How is it changing? And the curriculum that's being taught is that evolving or changing in yeah. any way? And how? Wow! Did somebody plant these questions? Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so a couple things I would say. So the makeup they use they still use mascara. <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. Um, the makeup is actually pretty similar. One interesting thing that happened: we had a while where we had an increasing number of female students, and it was actually increasing dramatically. Um, and then it kind of got to 55% of our student body, and then it went back to 50%. And that's interesting. And what's surprising about that is... Depends on the program. What? Depends on the program. And it depends on the program. That's the rabbinical school. The cantorial school does this bizarre thing. I don't know why this happens. They're like 50-50, 100% women. 50-50, 100% women. It just keeps doing that. And I don't really know why that is, but... My classes are 50 well, there you go. That's good. I knew it was definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, anyway, but so, so what's interesting is on gender balance, we're actually pretty good. We're, and the thing I want to say that's interesting is undergraduate education in the U.S. is 56% women, 44% men right now. So we're actually, we're actually more balanced than undergraduate education, which is kind of surprising. I wouldn't think that would be the case. I think we sort of model, you know, follow that model. But we are that way right now. Um, we had a while where we had a lot of older students coming to HUC. We're not seeing that as much anymore, which is fascinating. We had a lot of what we like to call recovering attorneys um, coming to the college, meaning people who had been attorneys for a long time and wanted to come, kind of come back and get connected to Judaism in meaningful ways. Um, we don't have as many. We still have some. The average age of our classes is still about 25, 26. Um, and um, the wonderful news, actually, is that we're going up in terms of the number of students we're attracting. Um, so it looks, we had not a great year last year, but this year it looks as if we're going to be about 30% above last year and above our five-year average. So, um, so it looks as if we're moving in the right direction. We've been doing a lot of investment in that. Curriculum. Um, I'll give you a one very quick example. We are rethinking the curriculum radically right now. Um, our provost is running a process with faculty. We've asked for board members. We're surveying people around the movement and alumni to get a good sense uh, because people like Rabbi Cherno and Sandra Woolman are folks who know more than we do at, in many cases about congregational life. We may know a lot about you know, tradition and everything else, but there's what to be learned from our alumni and from other folks. And so um, I'll give you a quick example of one story of how we're changing the curriculum. So uh, 
it used to be that we taught something called homiletics, which is a fancy word for giving sermons. Okay? And so I sat in a class where we spent a full semester writing sermons for the weekly Parsha, for all sorts of other things. And we talked to a couple of alumni about this, and we said, so what do you, what do you think we ought to do with homiletics? And he said, well, look, rabbis communicate the same way, but they're not given as many sermons. They're often teaching, they're on social media, they're in the media itself, they're um, you know, speaking for 10 minutes before a board meeting, you know, there's a variety of life cycle events. There are a million different things rabbis do that communicate. So maybe it's a better idea to think about a course in rabbinical communication as opposed to a course in giving sermons. And that's a great idea because what it means is we're thinking about how you use podcasts or how you use um, Facebook or how you create an online presence that's going to be meaningful for your congregation. Um, things change, and what we have to do is we have to change with them. On the other hand, I don't want to drop all the great Torah learning that one needs to have. To be an authentic rabbi, you actually have to know something, and you have to know something about our tradition. And you could be the best social media whiz in the world. If you have no content, nobody's going to listen to you, although that may not be true. Right. So, <laughs> so, it's, so it's an interesting question of how you balance the professional and the practical skills and how you balance the, the tradition we have to teach. And that's, that's what we're really thinking about in some very creative and exciting ways. I'm happy, by the way, to stick around tonight if anybody has more questions. Thank you.